Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders. And if this is your first time with us, you are most welcome. We are really glad to have you here with us. Thanks for joining us. We continue our study of Proverbs this morning, and we are in chapter 6. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 497. I've learned over the years that most of parenting involves helping children learn not to do dumb stuff. That's what it boils down to. Help them not to do things where they end up hurting themselves or others. For example, a child might destroy every tower or confiscate every treasure of their siblings and then they get upset when nobody wants to play with them. And you and I are so much different, aren't we? (laughs) We do dumb things and then we act surprised when bad stuff happens. Such as when I stay up too late at night and then I'm surprised when I'm too tired to get important work done the next afternoon. Proverbs chapter 6 was written to help us. This morning's text will highlight three kinds of fool. You can see them on your outline. We'll talk about the savior, the sluggard, and the sower of discord. All three of them will harm themselves and ruin the people they love. The main idea of this poem is that the self-focus of foolishness takes many forms. The self-focus of foolishness takes many forms. It rears its head in every area of our lives. So, The point is that just because you've identified and rejected folly in one area of your life, that does not mean that you are now forever free of it. You can be wise in one area of life and still be foolish in another. So prepare to address this topic of wisdom in all those areas of life for all the rest of your days. And that's where we're going. Because the good news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus died for fools to make it possible for them to become wise. And so by his spirit living within us, we are now free to make different choices and live as different people. That's where we're heading. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Our Father, please open our eyes and soften our hearts that we might see all these different ways that foolishness can arise in our lives. Help us to see clearly. Help us not to be afraid or self-protective, but help us to openly confess that we might be changed to become more like you. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first portrait of a fool describes what I call the Savior. This is in chapters 1 through 5 of Proverbs 6. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given up your pledge for a stranger, 
If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep. Pardon me, I skipped a line. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. The first fool is what I call the savior. The foolish savior is the person who, in verse 1, puts up security or gives a pledge for someone else. So what does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, finances worked a lot differently than they do today. They had no banks. They didn't have credit cards or PayPal. And if you didn't have enough money to pay your bills and you had to go into debt, there was no such thing as a credit bureau who could investigate your ability to repay so that the the creditor would know that they could trust you with this loan. All you could do was ask a friend of yours to sign off on the loan together with you. That way the creditor knows that if you fail to make payment, they can now go to their the friend who co-signed and they become liable for the debt. That's what this is talking about. That's what it means to put up security to give a pledge. And Proverbs here speaks to that friend Not the person who's going into debt, but the person who co-signs to help their friend who needs to go into debt. And this text says that you, this friend, you in verse 2 are snared, you are caught. Verse 3, you are in the hand of your neighbor. Verse 4 says you should not sleep until you can, quote, save yourself. A phrase that's repeated in both verse 3 and verse 4. Five, save yourself. Verse five says, you're roadkill. You're in season and you are well and truly trapped. The reason is because you now receive all the responsibility for this debt with no control whatsoever over the potential for defaulting on payments the friend that you signed for who might not pay back. Now, why would someone make this sort of agreement? And why is it such a big deal here? Why would someone do this? Well, it's, it's because you have a friend in need and you want to help. Most likely, they have no one else to turn to. You're their only hope. In short, what goes on, what would drive someone to do this is this savior wants to save this person from their situation, maybe from their choices. And the savior tries to do for people what only God can do for them. You see, the savior loves to rescue people from themselves or from their circumstances. The savior needs to be needed. Now, there is certainly 
a time to save people, to help people in a wise and godly way. So I must clarify that not all help of others is foolish. The Bible talks a lot about how much we are to help others. But this poem particularly highlights that there is definitely a time not to help someone, or at least not to help them in certain ways. Let me give some examples. You might be the foolish savior if you allow your fellow students to copy your homework. Or if you love it when people talk about how much you've helped them. Or let's say you're in a meeting of some sort, you're spending time with people, and you get a phone call or a text, and answering that call or text is more important than anything else because somebody needs you right now. You might be the savior if friends keep coming to you for accountability, but nothing actually changes in their lives but they keep coming back and coming back and coming back because you're offering them something that doesn't require them to change. Or maybe if you regularly cover up for someone's incompetence or their unethical behavior in the workplace, or if people's needs outside the home perpetually trump your God-given responsibilities inside your home, even if you're in ministry, I struggle with this all the time, And your family suffers as a result. You might be the savior if you're proud because you're the first person people come to for help. Or if you feel overwhelmed by how many people need you and how often they need you. Young folks, it can be tempting to date someone who is not a Christian because that person might not go to church if not for their relationship with you. But that is an expression of the foolish Savior. Don't do it. Now, none of these things that I have listed here by itself necessarily makes you the foolish Savior. But if there's a pattern of things like this over time, you just might be in danger. And I would encourage you to ask others if they think you rescue people too much or in unhelpful ways. Because if it continues, you might be caught by surprise when the bill comes due. When you are held responsible for the poor choices of someone else to whom you've attached yourself in unhelpful ways. Friends, Jesus is the true Savior who died for wannabe saviors. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. As the Apostle John says, and Jesus knows that you can't save other people from their circumstances. The truth is that even though this text calls you to save yourself in the most eternal sense, you can't even save yourself. So Jesus came and he did it for you. He is the only Savior. He can truly rescue people and he can bring you close to God. And the Lord's wisdom will enable you to reflect his lavish mercy as an act of wisdom and to do so in a way that doesn't dull the pain of people's choices. 
That's the difference between the wise representative of Christ and the foolish Savior. The foolish Savior ends up dulling people's choices so they don't have to suffer from them. Whereas the wise person is lavish with mercy and grace that transforms people. What does that look like? While the fool will share their homework for others to copy, the wise person instead might offer to tutor those who are struggling to help them improve. The fool co-signs loans for people, but the wise person perhaps considers whether to simply make a donation to help bring relief. And maybe even in exchange for some transparency of your finances or some financial coaching or something like that. The fool covers for the incompetence of others <clears throat> excuse me, in the workplace, but the wise person works hard and inspires others to work hard. If you find yourself constantly responding to needs, ask those close to you whether and how you ought to set appropriate boundaries. By all means, please be available to help people, but in your help, don't make the mistake of absorbing the consequences of their choices so that they don't have to experience those consequences or else they'll never learn how to make different choices. Your goal should always be to point people to Jesus and not to yourself lest we risk intercepting the discipline that God has brought into their life in order to win them to himself. I'm sure you don't want to intercept that because you want them to find him. The self-focus of foolishness comes in many forms, and one of the most insidious forms is that of stepping in to save people from the natural consequences of their own choices. But the text moves on. You could be wise in this area and still be the next kind of fool, which is the sluggard. The sluggard in verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard, and when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The second kind of fool is the sluggard. Sluggard is an old-fashioned word for lazy bones or couch potato. Sometimes today we call it senioritis. <laughs> this person loves to have fun. This person is usually behind on something, but nearly always runs out of time. Strikingly, the sluggard is often incredibly busy because they are accomplishing all the wrong priorities, the, wrong, the right things at the wrong time. The sluggard doesn't know how to produce stuff, but, but they know how to get it from others who produce it for them, whether it be their parents or their classmates or their church or the government. And verse 6 calls us to look at the world, to go to the ant and learn two things from the ant. In verse 7, we must learn that the ant is self-motivated. The ant does not have a chief or an officer or a ruler. 
The aunt is self-motivated. She doesn't need the professor to remind her of deadlines. The aunt doesn't need his mom or his spouse to nag him about taking out the trash. The aunt doesn't have drill sergeants getting in his face. The aunt does what needs to be done when it needs to be done and is self-motivated. And the second thing we learn in verse 8 is that the aunt is seasonally productive. The ant is seasonally productive. The ant prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. In other words, the ant knows when it's time to work and when it's time to play. The ant knows what should be done today and what really can be put off to tomorrow. The ant doesn't wait until winter hits to start stocking the shelves. The ant doesn't wait until the night before the exam to start studying or the night before the presentation to start preparing. And the sluggard, though constantly choosing not to do the right work at the right time without being told, the sluggard is terribly surprised. Verse 11, when poverty and want become his roommates. And they are armed. (laughs) Now, there is certainly a time for wise and godly rest. But there is also a time when rest is not the need of the moment. And it requires wisdom to tell the difference. Let me give some examples. You might be the sluggard if you miss classes due to oversleeping. Or if you constantly miss deadlines in the workplace. If you are more caught up on your Instagram news feed than you are on your basic responsibilities. You might be the sluggard if your mom does your laundry for you at home, or if you only remember to do your laundry when you've got something else you really should be doing right now, and you want to get out of that. You might be the sluggard if you regularly don't do the things that you say that you will do. You might be the sluggard if you need structure in order to work fruitfully and you expect other people to provide that structure for you. You might be the sluggard if you feel like other people nag you too much. Or if your phone's weekly screen time is greater than the amount of time you spend in meetings at the office or in class. Now, no one of these things by itself necessarily means that you are a sluggard, but a pattern of these things ought to get your attention. And I'd encourage you to ask the people around you if they think you might be a sluggard. The good news is that Jesus died for sluggards, He worked hard to do God's will, accomplishing everything God wanted him to do. And then he died to bring you back to God. So there's always hope to change. Now that we've become children of God, we who have trusted in Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Colossians chapter 3. So how do we get there? Notice in our text how God very graciously offers us two solutions to overcome laziness. Solution number one is in verse 9. 
And that solution is to ask yourself some hard questions. Ask yourself some hard questions. He asks, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And when he asks these questions, the answer he's looking for is not a length of time. I think I'll lie here one hour longer. No, that's not the point of the question. The point of the question is he's looking not for a length of time, but for a confession of motivation. How long are you going to lie there? Why are you not motivated to do what you're supposed to do right now? What do you get out of your distractions? And is it working for you? Is it really making you happier? Is it making you more dependable, truly at ease and closer to other people? So ask yourself some hard questions. Solution number two is in verse 10, which is to begin with minor choices. Begin with minor choices. He quotes the sluggard here, I think, saying, a little sleep. It's just a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. The point is that nobody chooses to ruin his or her life in a day. You won't decide today, you know, I think I'm going to ruin myself in poverty. That's my new life goal. Nobody does that. What we do instead is we say, I'm just going to check YouTube for a few minutes. And a few minutes turns into a few hours. Or a quick check of Instagram ends up then taking a whole afternoon. So begin with the little choices and cut it out before it begins. If your vocation doesn't provide its own structure and work hours for you, then I would urge you to set for yourself work hours and then work during those hours. So between this hour and this hour, when I was a student, I said between 9 and 6, except when I had evening classes, I refuse 8 a.m. classes, can't do it. Between 9 and 6, I'm working. All my classes, all my schoolwork, I'll take a break for lunch, but other than that, I'm working. If I've got a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m., then I'm going to find a lounge in between those two classes and I'm going to work that middle hour. Okay, work during the work hours. And then you have the freedom. You get to the end of it and you can say, hey, I'm done. And now I'm going to go shoot some hoops or I'm going to hang out with some friends or, or do something else. So give yourself your own structure. That doesn't mean that you're never allowed to take a break. But in my house, we have a rule, which is that we work hard and then we play hard. In the time of work, get the work done. And then in the time of rest, get the most out of it. The self-focus of foolishness comes in many forms. Some may be tempted to play the role of savior. Others are more prone toward the sluggard. But the text moves on. You can be wise in both of these areas and still be the next kind of fool, the sower of discord. Verses 12 through 19. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. 
there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, this poem refers to many sins all tucked in there, but its primary criticism is against sowing discord. That's what each half of the poem lands on in verse 14 and verse 19, the one who sows discord. Who is the sower of discord? Well, this is the person who splits people up person who creates factions, who turns one person against another because this person knows what's good for God's people better than God does. Therefore, this person is a fighter and a crusader. This person believes that every point of theology and every preference is worth dying for. This person puts people on teams and then turns them against one another. You know what? The sower of discord is always right. I am this fool. Perhaps some of you are too. We need to be careful because in verse 1, the Savior was addressed as my son In verse 6, the sluggard wasn't called son, but he was addressed directly, O sluggard. But in this poem, the sower of discord is not spoken to, the sower of discord is spoken about. This person is nearly beneath the author's dignity. In fact, verse 12 calls this person worthless and wicked. This person is known in verse 12 for crooked speech. This means that they they take words and then they twist them and put their own labels, perhaps on things that God prohibits. So what God calls complaints and he says, don't complain, this person rebrands them as concerns. Anger is crookedly relabeled as frustration. They refuse to acknowledge their bitterness. Instead, they use the crooked speech. They call it misunderstanding. They may have lots of questions, but they rarely find any answers. Verse 13 exhorts us to consider this person's body language, their eyes and their feet and their their fingers. When When this person is around people who offend them, do they roll their eyes? Do they grimace? Do they shake their heads? Do they make eye contact with you when this person's back is turned? And do they point their fingers to recruit people to their team? Frankly, this person is a really great friend to have because they make you feel like a million bucks. They make you feel like you are on the inside and all those other people are on the outside. This person offers you a prominent seat in the clubhouse. And when you take the bait and join that clubhouse, you are now a sower of discord as well. Worthless and wicked. Now, there is a time for wise and godly argument. 
There are times when Christians must do battle against false teaching and false teachers. It takes wisdom to know when an argument is protecting the flock and when it is sowing discord in the community. But let me give some examples. You might be a sower of discord if you have concerns about any person in this room that you have not told them about. And you've discussed those concerns with other people. You might be a sower of discord if you love hearing news about people. If you are always right. If you argue more than you agree and find things to agree on. You might be a sower of discord if all of your closest friends think the same way that you think. If if you love hanging out with the person who knows the real story about people. You might be the sower of discord if you see yourself as a victim when others call you out for sowing discord among God's people. You might be the sower of discord if you don't like what I'm saying right now. And you refuse to talk to me directly about it to help me improve as a preacher. Watch out. Verse 15 says, you'll be ruined before you know what hits you. Because friends, this community here in this room is Jesus's bride. And Jesus doesn't like it when people mess with his wife in fact verse 16 says that he hates them verse 16 says there are six things that the lord hates and verse 19 the sixth and seventh things are a false witness and the one who sows discord You see, there is no such thing as hate the sin but love the sinner when it comes to sowing discord. Now, with that said, I confess that I am guilty. I have spoken ill of people behind their backs. I have shared details about people with others that I didn't need to share. I have discussed the failings of my supervisors over the years with my subordinates. I have asked for the lowdown on people and I have entertained conversations that have gone in the wrong direction. I've asked Jesus to change me over the years and I wrestle daily with my sense of self-importance. Jesus died for sowers of discord. His body was broken once before to pay for the sin of the world. He will not put up with having his body broken again. He died on the cross, battered and abused, so he could unite us to God. Jesus' followers have always struggled with jockeying for position, disputing with one another, seeking their own agendas. But Jesus paid their debts 
He gripped their hearts and he gave them a vision for a community based not on power or position or prestige, but based on mutual service of one another. He said that whoever would be great among you must be your servant. But like all wisdom, the motivation for this won't ever come from inside ourselves. All you'll ever find there is self-love and self-protection. This wisdom must come from outside us. We must remember how Jesus loved us, how he died for us, how he forgave us and healed us. And so as we look to Jesus, our proud folly melts and we can move closer toward God and not away from him. And we can bring others closer together with us, with him. So we see that foolishness comes in many forms. Wisdom is not a once and done thing such that if you asked for it once and made some progress, you're now in no further need of it. No, you can be wise in one area, but foolish in another. This is why wisdom is a constant journey away from ourselves and toward the Lord. At every point, the Lord Jesus is our guide. He is our strength. He is our shield. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he is the wisdom of God sent to rescue and transform us. He died for you and takes you as you are. But he will not allow you to remain the same. When he moves into your heart... He will remodel you as he sees fit. May he grant us greater joy as we serve him and continue to grow in his wisdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus whom you sent to be our wisdom, to rescue us from folly and to grant us life courage, and strength to honor you. Please help us to walk in this new life. Help us to trust you and rely on the power of your spirit to shape us and change us that our next steps may, if necessary, be steps of repentance and as necessary that we will turn from these things as we root out the foolishness that resides in all these different areas of our hearts and one after another Put it to death that we might walk in your life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.